0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahovyn.com.
1: Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. And I'm excited to tell you that today actually happens to be on the verge of the end of the year and into a new year but it also happens to be our episode 100 of the podcast so that's amazing we've been going nearly two years now and I thought it was a very apt time to have Adam talking about New Year's resolutions. Really what I wanted to concentrate on today was what we can do in our garden, all of us, that can really help affect the terrible plight of our planet, which of course 2022 has been a year uh, pretty profoundly depressing in many, many ways. And let's all hope that 2023 can be more cheerful, but we can in a way cheer ourselves with actually doing something about it. And so that's why I want Adam to explain what he knows. He's not a leading expert at all, but we've just had a carbon audit done here and a biodiversity audit done here. And so what we can all learn from the research that he's done on this particular place that we can extend all the way around the country with all of your gardens and all of your spaces. So, Adam, why don't you explain the the main things that we can do?
0: Yes, okay. So, I mean, the the carbon audit was an incredibly interesting process. Uh, These experts came and dug in the soils, and we sent the soils off to be analysed, and they looked at what we grow and how we grow it, and how many hedges and trees we have, what sort of long grass, what permanent grass we have, and what area of tillage. And they did it for the farm here and for the garden jointly. And the whole place, it turned out, was emitting a huge, huge amount. 83 tons equivalent of carbon dioxide every year. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, it's like a great balloon of it. But at the same time, because there were so many trees and hedges, it was absorbing and storing, sequestrating, as they say, 56 tons. And so the, the difference between what is being pumped out and what is being sucked back in, is about 20 tonnes equivalent.
1: But I just want to stop you there because, I mean, I would have thought that as organic gardeners who are interested in nature, who have, you know, we have massively decreased, if not excluded, inputs, you know, I'm just totally shocked. What is the main thing that is causing that high carbon dioxide emission?
0: Well, the main thing is... Fuel yeah the main thing is fuel to drive the tractors the the mowers, the hedge cutters, people coming here, people working coming here, people visiting coming here, not your and my personal fuel expenditure, but all of that, and so if you if you actually removed all that, you know if we worked the thing with um donkeys. Or, ele- nice. or electric. <laughs> or, or electric. Then, in fact, the thing would be nearly down to zero, to, to, to net zero, that we would emit, we would sequestrate as much as we emitted, it. And in fact, that is pretty well the position for the farm. It's very near zero. But they say, you know, there are definitely things we can do and that any gardener can do. And one very important thing to do is to keep the soil covered. Mm, right, Naked, long-term naked soil is an emitter. And to keep it covered with a green manure or a mulch, you know, that would definitely would reduce emissions. And permanent growing grass. The longer a, a grass or like a kind of sward type plant grows, the, the taller it grows, the deeper its roots go. And the more that you can uh, get long roots on grass, the more carbon you're sequestrating. That is actually stored carbon. And they gave an extraordinary figure for the farm as a whole. They thought that under the grass here in the fields is nearly 3,700 tons of carbon. I mean, it's you know, if our emissions are, are adding up sort of 20-odd a year, it's, it's hundreds centuries of sequestration mm. is already there in the grass. So if you have grass, keep it growing, right. keep it long, keep it a real plant. You know? And
1: so by extension from that, surely then a perennial border, which is permanently planted – with things coming up and then dying back, you know, if it's herbaceous or with shrubs or whatever is much less carbon emitting than annuals, which unfortunately is what we predominantly do. <laughs> I'm in.
0: afraid so. But the, the ba- really bad thing that happens here is tillage.
1: Yeah, but tillage
0: that's, is carbon a carbon pump.
1: Yeah, but so now that we're no dig and we use huge amounts of mulch, we don't actually have bare soil here ever. But are you saying that the mulch is also emitting
0: Well, as you say, I'm no expert. I imagine that as a mulch rots, it will emit. Mm. I mean, one interesting thing, people often talk about methane as a very destructive uh, greenhouse gas, you know, because it's very powerful. But the uh, experts who did this survey say thinking is changing about methane and rotting stuff, that it is bad for uh, 10 or 12 years but after 10 or 12 years, it breaks down in the atmosphere and it's no longer there. Mm. It is not Methane is not a long-term uh, greenhouse gas, unlike carbon dioxide, oh. which once you put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it lasts for centuries, right. forever, uh, effectively. So, in fact, the methane cycle is very short. Okay. And you would get an initial pulse from um, uh, something rotting. But that, after 10 or 12 years, will be reabsorbed into the system that you're running. So you don't need to worry about methane rot. Okay.
1: So so what you're saying is, is permanent planting is really good, but then also massive, filling every possible corner you can with hedges.
0: Hedges are really good. Trees are really good. A kind of thick, long grass is really good. Anything, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, no. this, is it? Anything that's absorbing and using the carbon mm. is going to be good.
1: And water is the other thing that they have advised, that we need lots more shallow ponds and water.
0: Well, I think that water is related. It is not part of the same issue. But there is definitely a water crisis in the offing. Mm. You know, we are using so much water in this country. We, each of us, incredibly, on average, use 150 litres of water a day. Uh, bath is 80. And it is just an enormous demand on the water resource. I know in Denmark, you know I've just written an article about rivers, so I'm all up on this. In Denmark, they use 80 litres wow. of water a day, nearly half. There's a big crisis coming that, uh, you know, by 2030, 2040, 2050, we're going to be seriously short of water. They're going to have to build enormous reservoirs. People hate the idea of an enormous reservoir on their doorstep. The only thing to do is to shut down on use. And so, of course, in a place like this mm. is, we do it to some extent already, but we need to a lot more collect the water off the roofs, be very careful about water conserving surfaces mm. you can if you want to tarmac something you can now get permeable tarmac it actually sinks through in into the ground and you you restock you recharge the aquifer the groundwater underneath and so i i think it's going to be vastly important in the future this and of course you know we know from this summer don't we mm. the drought threat
1: mm. so decreasing the number of imports in the garden is one of our new year's resolutions so certainly at the moment we're still buying in some of our seed compost and some of our potting compost so one of our new year's resolutions is that we're going to go off and we're going to learn about using our own manure and our own homemade compost and mixing it with things so that we can actually create seed compost and potting compost on site here and i will report back on that as soon as we've got anything to tell you all. And then the other thing is really easy for us is the whole feeds and fertilizers thing. So, well, obviously as an organic garden, we're not using nitrogen fertilizer, but we do use seaweed fertilizer And one of the things that is sometimes used here is a a product called SB invigorator, which you put on the container plants to give them a sort of tonic. And we're going to stop all that. So no seaweed fertilizer is going to come in. We're going to create all our own. We already do a bit, but not enough for our pots. So our own comfrey feed, nettle feed chive tea also against mildew, etc. So we're going to really, we're not going to buy anything in. That is the demand. I mean, you know, we won't be able to stick to a hundred percent, but even by being super aware, if ever there's a van or a lorry coming down the drive, either from Amazon or somewhere else, it's like, what's in that and why is it coming? Because it's just, it's so, we've got so amazingly used in lockdown to just everything arriving and so being able to generate lots more of our own stuff and then obviously on the plastic thing we've been super aware of this for ages and we only use jute in the garden not plastic netting anymore for all the plants here but obviously there's no point chucking out plastic so when anything plastic like our seed trays comes and pots comes to the end of their life we'll get them recycled but we won't buy plastic again we will buy rubber and you know it's again as adam says it's just common sense anyway i I, I
0: have some things to add to oh this. good there's going to be there's going to be a, a common cost on rubber uh, you know yeah. rubber comes from of the far, far east yeah and i also we've got to think about renewable heating sources yeah. renewable all of that kind of thing and i think we could also start to think about really lovely bushes <laughs> You know, really lovely garden shrubbery. I mean, it's an extremely old-fashioned term. But actually, that that is, that is where the beautiful garden in this global sense lies in the future. Mm, mm, it would be lovely mm. to think of that, you know, to plant very seedy, very fruity, very colourful, you know, very kind well, of…
1: Things like spindle. Yeah,
0: dynamic, beautiful, mini-woods. All that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, enough preaching on the emissions and sequestration stuff. I think now, in a way, more cheerful perhaps, is to move on to the biodiversity. And the thing that I want to concentrate on here is the birds and the garden birds, because Adam is currently working on a book on woodland and garden birds, and he spends a lot of time sitting in the wood watching (laughs) goldfinches... (laughs) And woodpeckers, and if he's very lucky, winter visitors like bramblings and siskins, etc., and field fairs. We had a field fair here yesterday. So, Adam, what can we all do to make our gardens even better for bird life?
0: Well, it reminds me we were watching Strictly the other day, and that nice South African dancer said to his partner, Love your inner weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I do think I think there is something about loving your inner weird here. That it is absolutely magical spending time with uh, the birds, and I have been, as you know, for months. So, birds, birds, birds. Well, I think you've got to, you know, essentially look after them, haven't you? So you've got to just provide for them the things that they need. And so, what do they need? They need to eat. They need to shelter, they need to breed, they need to feel safe. And in other words, just treat them as you would your children, really, or your dogs. So, And
1: they need not to be given diseases. So will you tell us about the whole bird feeder debate? Well,
0: yes. I mean, that is really, really difficult because there's nothing, well, maybe nothing, but there are a f- few things as life-enhancing as for hanging up the the bird feeders and feeding the birds. You know, it's just like a wonderful, natural aviary arriving outside your windows. And uh, we've done it now for, what, two or three or four years or something like that, increasingly. And I've been doing it in the wood as well by a a bird hide there. It's marvellous, except I think there are two things that if you feed and feed and feed and feed, you generate an entire sort of world of birds around you. And then you go away hmm. and you don't fill them and they have no food. And as they've been expecting to have for weeks, then that really is catastrophic. Right. And you kill small birds by doing that. You kill baby birds by doing that in the same okay, time. So it's got and to so be consistent. continuity, continuity which is incredibly difficult. Right. But if you think you can't, I don't think you should. Right. If you if you can't be continuous, you shouldn't do it at all.
1: But, but let's talk about months here, though, because obviously if in in a, you're in a garden setting, there will be seeds and, you know, st- fruit and stuff to eat between, you know, let's say April or maybe May until... November time so what you're saying is during that time don't feed the birds but if you're going to feed them between November and April you mustn't stop you've got to keep topping up
0: your feeders the key the key thing as for so much in nature is the hungry gap yeah uh, that usually through the winter quite a lot of the autumnal berries and are hanging on but they will have been used up run out run out by February March so it's Mm. February March April even into May you know there's this weird thing yes. about May being a difficult time with this most blessed time in the whole year and suddenly the natural world is really struggling but that is when to feed but there is a major problem with feeders which the um the British Trust for Ornithology which is a really good organisation did some science on this and recently they've they've published it and it turns out that Bird feeders that don't get cleaned pass on to birds parasites that can be very, very, very damaging. And there's a particular tiny parasite, it's a little tiny microscopic thing, a single celled uh, organism, which uh, has been for a very long time in pigeons and uh, rock doves and all of that, has been passed through feeders and bird tables to the finches, to particularly green finches and, slightly lesser extent, chaffinches. And as a result, over the last something like um, 2006, I think this is the kind of baseline, so the last, what's that, 15, 16 years, green finches in this country have declined by 60%. Gosh, right. And 60%, well, fair enough, green finches, but that is actually 5 million greenfinches killed by dirty bird feeders. And do, it's really sobering, isn't do
1: it? Do they catch it from each other then? It, does the infection get into the family group of greenfinches yes. and then it is cross-transmitted.
0: I do know I don't know okay. the answer to
1: that. But I mean but it's, it is
0: definitely from the columbines, they call the dove like birds. Right, right. To the finches. And it's Greenfinches and chaffinches are the ones that they've studied. Mm. But people don't know about bullfinches. I mean, bullfinches are so spectacularly rare Yeah, we, we hardly ever see them. Yeah. What's happened to them?
1: And I have to say, as a child, I used to see greenfinches every day. And even here, when we moved here, I remember chaffinches really being common. And they're not common anymore. The one thing that is incredibly common that obviously is more resistant to this is the, is the goldfinch.
0: Goldfinches are booming across Europe as a whole. Right. No one quite knows why. It may be because of people feeding, and they, for whatever reason, kind of do better out of that. Right, right. This country is the biggest feeder of all in in Europe. We are absolutely Uh. addicted to it. And there is a big industry now selling the food, you know, which we're customers Mm. of. Yeah, yeah. so it's a strange, it's a strange ambivalent thing. This isn't okay, it but that so... you love them, you want them there, but my God, you must. And it's said to be weekly, weekly washing. We- okay, that's what I was going to ask you. Weekly washing of the feeders in
1: Jay's fluid, like a proper
0: bleach, a proper bleach, a proper disinfectant to kill the bugs. Otherwise. You know, that, that you won't kill the, the parasite.
1: No, no. Okay.
0: Uh, that's a bit gloomy.
1: That's all. This is all very gloomy. I think we should talk about some cheerful things now. So one of the things is is introducing plants to your garden. And I'm absolutely not saying don't use bird feeders because done right, then as Adam says, they're a massive life enhancer for me as I'm sitting here on a winter's day. I light a few candles and I look at the bird feeders and those two things can get you through many a miserable afternoon like it was yesterday when it was pouring with rain. But introducing more bird seed and fruit feeding plants to your garden is another incredibly positive thing to do. And so as well as having shrubs and trees and hedges for carbon sequestration, have them for birds garden birds too but i think it's worth us maybe finishing on a high note on a positive note of what we can do very easily in our gardens in 2023 which is to grow some maybe let's have i don't know five or ten really wonderful garden bird food giving plants
0: well i mean i have i got an agricultural mix which i and which i've scattered in a clearing in the wood and it's come up fantastically. I literally broadcast it by hand, walking through the wood, and it's everywhere, growing everywhere. And that has lovely things in, like the plant called Stand and Deliver.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Stand and Deliver is. That's what
0: they call it. Perhaps it's a farmer's term. Is it called Perennial Chicory?
1: Okay, could well be. Chicory has is you see on the road verges with beautiful bright, bright sky blue flowers that close at lunchtime.
0: Okay, so that's worth having.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Facilia,
1: mm-hmm. Facilia, Tanacetafolia is a beautiful plant. Again, sky blue,
0: and linseed, another blue one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't know what what significance that
1: linseeds. Has. I think have very high protein and omegas. It's certainly something that is very healthy to put into bread. So I'm sure that's why it's also healthy for birds.
0: And then some brassicas like mustard, a mm-hmm. uh, rape seed. And something, I don't know, a kale. Is that a a mustard?
1: Uh, It's a brassica. A
0: brassica. Fodder radish, what's that?
1: Oh, yes. Well, that is sometimes, I think, called rat's tail radish. It's very quick growing, and uh, it's very quick pod forming. And it forms these pods that taste of radish. I think it's in the radish family. But it looks, they end in a kind of rather ugly looking rat's tail. So it's almost like a... A sugar snap pea with a rat's tail on the end. So
0: maybe these things are quite early deliveries.
1: Well, and I think the point about that is I'm sure it, it probably, not only has it got good carbohydrate, but also probably good protein.
0: And then they gave me a couple of uh, grain, barley and triticale.
1: Yeah, so those would be quick ripening grains. Quick
0: ripening grains, and that's it really. That's, yes, that's so the thing.
1: Th- those those are all very well if if you've got a wood, which you're lucky enough that you do. But if you've got a garden, I mean, I suppose you could put this mix at the bottom of a hedge, couldn't you, to enhance the food content of a hedge? Do
0: they need sunshine?
1: Yeah, they would. Most of those would need sun because most of those so are the animals. sunny side of a hedge. The, the sunny side of a hedge it would enhance the hedge definitely. But also in terms of garden plants, I'm going to finish on this bit of the podcast with my five top plants that are really garden worthy. So, you know, I would put them in any border here very happily. And I know and see every day that as soon as the seed starts to ripen in in July, August onwards until right the way into the winter, these are the most visited plants. The first, interestingly, is a plant that lots of us are growing anyway, and it's Verbena benariensis. But Verbena rigida too, they obviously are incredibly prolific seed producers. And if you think about what you use to feed we used to have gars when I was a child and we used to go into the garden and we'd pick groundsel and poke it through and hang it in the gars cage. And they loved it. And I'm sure it's because it was so prolific of seed. And so I'm sure that's the same with verbena. So you'll see, is it called a, no, not a pride, that's lions. What is it called with goldfinches? A charm. A charm. That's it. A charm of goldfinches you'll see on the Verbena benariensis here that self-seeds all the way along the drive and it's the most wonderful site. So if you're not already growing, but you probably are, Verbena is absolutely top whack plant for birds. The other one that I've been surprised by being visited very much by sparrows actually this year which are becoming increasingly rare and dunnocks you know those one with the little red legs
0: head sparrows
1: head sparrows is ammi visnaga now Ami majus has been a big favorite plant of mine for ages because it's beautiful garden worthy but also it's fantastic for hoverflies but ammi visnaga has incredibly dense uh, seed heads that are absolutely jam packed full of seed and I've really noticed that we've had a stand of it here. And at just the whole time, on the top layer, there are sparrows. And on the bottom layer, I suppose with the seeds that are dislodged, are robins and blackbirds doing all the ground feeding. So that would be my second absolute must-have for 2023. The third is one that if any of you have heard me teaching, you'll know I bang on about quite a lot, which is red millet. Red millet or panicum violacium. And that is a grass that you'll probably, I bet you'll have it in your in your birdseed mix, but also it's often used in game crops. And it's a very nice grain with a hanging, sort of slightly pendulous head in a nice crimson with very big seeds. And that's called red millet or panicum violaceum. And again, you'll see that in birdseed. And it's elegant, it's not invasive. So teasel is a wonderful plant for goldfinches, but it absolutely romps through a garden. So I wouldn't introduce that into a neat garden. I put it again, possibly around your hedges, but it, it, I would still be wary of it. And then the next would be Nicandra a shoe fly plant, which has these little apples hanging in what looks like a Chinese lantern. And the whole tit family absolutely love those and feast on those like mini apples. And then the final thing is to have a small crab apple tree or an apple tree, but you don't need a big garden to have a crab apple. So you could have something like red sentinel or golden hornet or any of those. And they're relatively compact and you can prune them really easily. We have Dartmouth here and huperhensis. and and then Amelanchia is the third, which of course isn't a crab apple, but they all are wonderful plants for a garden that will give birds tons and tons of really fantastic forage uh, from early in the year until late. So before we finish our New Year's resolutions, I'm going to ask you whether you have, apart from the garden and the farm, a New Year's resolution for yourself, and then I will do one too.
0: Yes, I do have one. Someone said to me the other day that any decision they made should always involve coming closer to other people, and that is my resolution. Very good, very profound.
1: Mine is less profound, I'm afraid. Mine is that I am 60 this year and I'm 60 in February. And February is a pretty grim month of the year. And we've had a long winter in this country by February, and yet spring is not yet here. And I struggle with that. Light levels are low, still pretty wet. It feels pretty gloomy. And so I am really going to concentrate on making February lovely, but I'm going to do it with plants. And so I am going to, well, I have already planted freesias in my greenhouse, paper white narcissi. I am literally today going to be putting in some more hyacinths so that I can have them. And they'll be in the greenhouse and in my kitchen, and they will fill this whole place. With perfume in February. So it scented February for me in 2023 to make me feel that being 60 is absolutely fine, which I feel fine about it. I've, I've done lots in my life, and it's I'm completely cool with being 60, but February is tricky, and so I'm going to make February nicer in 2023. Thanks so much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range. I hope there's food for thought there from mine and Adam's New Year's resolutions. Next week, I'm joined by Gary Newell, who is our senior horticultural buyer of my mail order company. And he is unbelievably knowledgeable about new trends in plants and particularly about perennials. And so I've asked him to join me to talk about what he feels are the 12 best plants for small gardens. So I'm longing for that. And I'm going to learn a lot. And I hope you'll join us then.
0: You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.